We come again this morning to Romans chapter 9. We have been studying consecutively through the book of Romans for some while now, and we come to the end of Romans chapter 9. If the Apostle Paul had chosen to divide his presentations up into doctrine and then application, we might say that what we come to this morning is the a bit of the application of what he has been saying in the first parts of Romans chapter 9. Please turn to this chapter. I would like us to read together, beginning in Romans chapter 9 and verse 24. You'll appreciate that when we begin to read in verse 24, we are breaking into the middle of a very uh, tightly connected passage, but I would rather not take the time to read the whole passage, and so I ask you to just for a moment, bear with what might seem a ragged beginning in Romans chapter 9, verse 24. Even us, whom he called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. He had been presenting aspects of the doctrine of election. And here Paul is saying that God has elected, he has chosen, not only from among the Jews, but he has also chosen from among the Gentiles. Verse 25, as he saith also in Hosea, quote, I will call that my people, which was not my people, and her beloved that was not beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said unto them, you are not my people, there shall they be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah crieth, concerning Israel, if the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that shall be saved. For the Lord will execute his word upon the earth, finishing it and cutting it short. And as Isaiah hath said before, except the Lord of Saboeth had left us a seed, we had become as Sodom and had been made like unto Gomorrah. What shall we say then, that the Gentiles who followed not after righteousness attain to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith? But Israel, following after a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by works. They stumbled at the stone of stumbling, even as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he that believeth on him shall not be put to shame. We have said before that in these three chapters, chapter 9 and chapter 10 and chapter 11, the Apostle Paul is dealing with the general subject of God's relationship to the Jews and to the Gentiles. And as a secondary subject, he is also writing about the relationship of the Jews and the Gentiles to one another. Now, in what we have studied, chapter 9, verse 1, all the way through verse 24, all the way through there, the Apostle Paul has been writing exclusively about God's dealings with the Jews. Now, what he says in those passages in many places is applicable to God's dealings with all people, but he has been writing especially about, what, about God's dealings with the Jews. And just by way of review, Paul has written about his own heart's attitude toward them, how he loves them, and yearns for them. He has written about God's blessing upon the Jews. He writes of that in verses 4 and 5 and 6. He has also implied the Jews' apostasy and condemnation. He has spoken of the certainty of God's word not failing in reference to the Jews, that God has chosen some. His purposes, according to election, will certainly stand. Having made that statement, he launches into a, a refutation of two objections. Perhaps the most common objections that are raised have been and are raised against the doctrine of election, and having dealt with those two objections in reference to the doctrine of election, he ends that section with, in verse 24 
by drawing reference to the fact that this God who does have the right to sovereignly choose whom he will, that this God has chosen to save some from among the Jews and, wonder of wonders, he has chosen to save some from among the Gentiles. Now that, that idea in verse 24 sets the stage now for everything that comes through the end of chapter 9. In verses 25 through 29, he proves that very point from the Old Testament. He proves that God has chosen some from among the Gentiles from the Old Testament, and he proves that God has chosen only some, not all, but some from among the Jews in the second part of this passage. I'd like us very briefly to look at these statements and then give most of our time to verses 30 through 33. First, in chapter 9, verse 25 and 26, Paul uses the Old Testament to establish that God has elected some from among the Gentiles. And in those two verses, he quotes from Hosea. He quotes Hosea chapter 2, verse 23, and chapter 1, verse 10. I'm sorry that we're not in a Sunday school class and that we can't take the time to look up the verses and engage in some give-and-take conversation because this is a difficult passage. But we don't have that time this morning. This passage in Hosea is where the prophet is writing about Israel. Paul is using it in reference to the Gentiles. If we were to look at what Paul is saying in those passages in Hosea, you'll find that the nation of Israel had so thoroughly apostatized that God had written them off, that God had said they were now not my people. They were aliens and strangers from his covenant. They had no claims upon him. The covenant was against them. The covenant provisions, you remember, were that if they did not obey God, God would cut them off and, and condemn them. Well, at the point of time when Hosea is writing, God is fulfilling those covenant threats. And he is saying, you are not my people. You are like the Gentiles who are outside of the covenant. Now, God in his mercy came to those whom he had designated not my people and brought them back. And he took those people who were rebels and apostates and outside of the covenant promises and brought them back and called them my people who shall be called the sons of God. He did that to the remnant of the Jews. Now, Paul is taking that passage about what God did to those rebel apostate Jews and applying that to the rebel apostate Gentiles. Those Gentiles who, according to Romans chapter 1, had forsaken God, would not worship him as God. God had forsaken them, given them up to their own lusts. They were not my people. Now Paul is using this passage in Hosea to say that just what God did for those apostate Jews, he is also doing for apostate Gentiles. He takes those who are not his people, have no claims on him at all, and chooses some of them, some of such people, to be his people people. That's the general thrust of chapter 9, verse 25 and verse 26, a demonstration that God has elected some from among the Gentiles. And now the second part of this, of this argument, or proof rather, is in chapter 9, verse 27 through 28, where Paul uses the Old Testament scriptures to demonstrate that God has chosen some from among the Jews. He's just demonstrated God has chosen some from among the Gentiles, and now he wants to demonstrate that God has chosen some from among the Jews. Now this, you remember, was the concern that he began with in verse 6, establishing that God has never promised and in fact never has savingly dealt with every child of Abraham. He's never promised to save every descendant of Abraham, and in fact he has never done so. That's, we've already seen that idea. Now Paul's taking it up again. This time he's proving his point by quotes from the book of Isaiah. And in that passage, you look in verse 27, Isaiah cries concerning Israel. If the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that shall be saved. This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 10. If there are so many Jews, he's saying, 
that, they, that their number equals the numbers of the particles of sand upon the seashore. No matter how many there may be, Isaiah says God has promised to save only a remnant. Now this passage has a historical context. It has to do with God's giving up the nation to the Assyrian forces. And, the book, and Isaiah is, is saying very plainly that it doesn't matter though they be a great number. God has promised to save only some. God has promised to save only a remnant and his work of judgment is going to be finished and cut short. And then he quotes also from Isaiah chapter 1, except the Lord of Seboeth had left us a seed, we had become as Sodom and been made like unto Gomorrah. God has promised to save some of the Jews. The fact that he's promised to save some is the reason that he's given general mercies to the nation. He's saying that because God is choosing to save a remnant of Jews, the whole nation has not been allowed to be like Sodom and Gomorrah. Please don't miss the point. It's not that God is determined to save all the Jews. He hasn't. He's determined to save a remnant. But because he's determined to save a remnant, he was merciful to the whole nation. People often ask, why do the nation of, of Jews seem to have such special privilege in God's eyes even in the present time? And they take that as, a, as some kind of evidence that God intends to save every one of them. It's never been that way. God is always determined to save a remnant. But because of the remnant, he's shown mercy to the whole nation. It was because of the remnant that he did not treat the nation as if they were Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, that's, that's all I'd like to say about those, that series of verses. The Apostle Paul uses the Old Testament first to demonstrate that God has chosen to save some from among the Gentiles. Secondly, he uses the Old Testament to demonstrate that in the past, always, and in the present, God is determined to save a remnant of the Jews. Just in passing, perhaps it's important that you notice that Paul is quoting passages from Isaiah that had to do with the historical circumstances of Isaiah's time in reference to God only saving a remnant from the Assyrians. And Paul takes that passage, which had a distinct historical context, and he applies it to explain what was happening in his day hundreds of years later. God had always promised to work with a remnant of the nation. Now, look at verse 30, and here you come to what I said at the beginning might be considered an application of what he's given before, and it is here that I would like us to spend our time now. What shall we say then in the light of all this, in the light of all these things beginning in chapter 9, verse 1? What shall we say then in the light of the Jews' tremendous privileges, in the light of their apostasy and condemnation, in the light of election, in the light of God's promise to save some Gentiles and some Jews? What shall we say then? What is the implication of all this? You may recognize this phrase, this question, because the Apostle Paul uses that language frequently. You look back through the book of Romans, you'll find it a few times. What shall we say then? What is the implication of this? We should ourselves be constantly doing that. We study doctrine. We study the doctrine of election. We study these objections. We should be asking ourselves, what shall we say then? What are the implications of this? What's the point? That's what Paul is doing here. What shall we say then in the light of all of this? The implications of what he has been stating are very surprising. They're obvious, though. The first implication is that Gentiles received salvation. The second implication is that the Jews did not receive salvation. Spurgeon calls this the wonder of grace and the wonder of folly. The wonder of grace that the Gentiles who did not seek righteousness obtained it, the wonder of grace and the wonder of folly that the Jews who were so close did not attain to the salvation of God. I would like us to look at these two conclusions and then draw some extended applications. In the first place, Paul's conclusion, the Gentiles received salvation. Look again at verse 30. What shall we say then that the Gentiles who followed not after righteousness, attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is 
of faith. They did not follow after righteousness. Notice that is the first part of what he says. They did not follow after righteousness. It was not characteristic of the Gentiles, of the pagans of Paul's day, to have any concern about that righteousness which God required. It's too bad that we're not all great historians. If we were, we could appreciate more of the force of this. The Gentiles did not, were not characterized by any interest in the righteousness which God required. It's not like today where there was just such a mass spread of knowledge. They were basically ignorant of biblical revelation. They were basically ignorant of Old Testament history. They were basically ignorant of the biblical account of creation. They were basically ignorant that they were the creatures of a living God. They were basically ignorant of God's law. They had some remains, the effects of that law in their conscience, but they were basically ignorant of the law. They were basically ignorant of God's promises and covenants. They were ignorant of the biblical view of eternal life. They were, they were ignorant of the true character of God. Their concept of God at the lowest was that of a lizard, and at the highest was that as some kind of a perverse human being with unspeakable powers. But their views of God were completely wrong. They did not know. They were ignorant of the character of the true God. And they led a life that was consistent with that ignorance. They were not interested in righteousness in, in the way God determines it. You read the account of the ancient world. You read Paul's statements about the Gentiles of his days. What were they interested in? They weren't interested in righteousness. They were lovers of pleasure and lovers of self. They were interested in all those things that Paul writes of in the first chapter of Romans. They were not interested in God. They were not interested in righteousness. Turn back to that passage, please, in Romans chapter 1. Don't weary of coming back to this passage. This passage like Genesis chapter 3, is a basic passage in understanding our present situation, in understanding the need for the gospel, in understanding what people are like. This is what characterized the Gentiles. This is what characterized the pagans of the first century. According to Romans chapter 1, in the most general terms, verse 19 and following, God had made known to the Gentiles something of himself. In their conscience, they had a vague sense of what was right and wrong. In the creation, they had some awareness of the grandeur and glory and power of a God who could create something such as the creation which they saw. But it says in this passage that they refused to glorify him. Having this general knowledge of God, they refused to glorify him. And they refused to be thankful, Paul says in verse 21. They refused these things. They refused to glorify him as God. They preferred to make images of reptiles and beasts, but they would not glorify him as God. And they refused to be thankful. The passage goes downhill from that point. It talks about God giving them over. In verse 24, it says this, God gave them up. To in the lusts of their hearts unto uncleanness, that their bodies should be dishonored among themselves. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. Verse 26 For this cause God gave them up unto vile passions. And verse 28 Even as they refused to have God in their knowledge, God gave them up unto a reprobate mind to do those things which were not fitting. What characterized the Gentiles? They would not glorify God. They would not be thankful to God. They refused to have the knowledge of God in their thinking. They did not think it was worthy of their intellectual conceptions to view life and reality through the prisms of God. They wouldn't do it. And so God gave them over to all these things that are in the passage. When Paul says that they sought not after righteousness, it's almost an understatement. They sought everything that was the opposite of righteousness. 
They would not maintain the knowledge of God in their mind. They would not be committed to basic morality. They seemed to raise their fist against everything that God's law required, and God let them go. And they gave themselves to every form of perversion that it's almost embarrassing to read the list again and again and to expose our minds to what those things are. They did not seek righteousness. They didn't care about righteousness. Some of them were pure hedonists. Some of them were pagan philosophers. Although they wouldn't have God in their knowledge, they still had an interest in knowledge. They were still concerned about the things that men have always been concerned about, about absolute questions. They were still concerned about where they came from, what was the meaning of life, where they were concerned about all those things. But they wouldn't have God in their knowledge. They were pagan philosophers. Some of them were moralists, but according to a perverted kind of morality. Some of them were magicians and spiritists and filled with all kinds of superstitions, but the Gentiles of the ancient world didn't know or care about righteousness. They were not interested in righteousness as God required. They did not care to worship the one God. They did not care to find out how this one God wanted to be worshipped. They did not want to give him one day as a special and holy day. They were unwilling to commit themselves to fidelity and marriage. They were unwilling to give themselves to sexual purity. They didn't care about those things. They did not follow after righteousness, Paul says. But it says, and this is the amazing thing of the conclusion, that even though they did not follow after righteousness, He says they did attain, they attained to righteousness. They didn't know about it. They didn't care about it. They didn't seek it. They didn't want it, but they got it. They attained to righteousness. Now, how could this be? How could this be that the people described in Romans chapter 1, whom God gave over and forsook to the impurity of their minds, How could it be that such people could attain righteousness? Well, the answer, according to the context of this verse, is that God chose them and God sought them. God sent preachers into the Gentile world. The Gentiles heard and God sent his spirit into the Gentile world and changed their minds and took them when they were sunk in the kind of depravity that Romans chapter 1 describes God gave them yearnings for forgiveness, yearnings for righteousness, which never characterized them before. They didn't care. God came to them. He sent preachers to them. He sent his spirit to them. He had chosen them, and in time he sought them out and gave them faith and gave them repentance and changed them radically so that they were no longer adulterers and idolaters and feminists and, I'm sorry, effeminate and so forth. They were not those things because God came to them and changed them. Christianity had begun as a Jewish religion. Its founder was Jewish. Its most influential writers were Jewish. Its first converts were Jewish. But it's not known as a Jewish religion any longer. It's known as a Gentile religion, and the Jews are offended by it. Why is that? It's because God chose the Gentiles. It's because when once they did not care about his righteousness, God, in his sovereign good pleasure, chose them and called them to himself. Now notice that's, that's all a brief summary of what Paul says in reference to the Gentiles. Notice what he says in reference to the Jews in verse 31. But Israel following after a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. Why? And then he answers the why. Notice in the first place what he says about the Jews. They followed after a law of righteousness. They had the Old Testament law. They had the covenants. They had the knowledge of God. Righteousness was very important to the Jews. Now we're speaking in large terms, of course. There there no doubt were Jews who didn't care either. But speaking of them as as a general group, righteousness was very important to them. One of the writers made this rather crisp statement, but I thought it captured this very well, that 
that righteousness was of no interest to the Gentiles, but it was a business to the Jews. Their whole life revolved around the pursuit of righteousness. They did seek to know what the law required. They did seek to be righteous because they wanted God's favor. That was true of them. The religion of the Pharisees, which we are so prone to criticize because of the critical statements which are in the New Testament in reference to them, nonetheless, the religion of the Pharisees was focused upon this very issue of obtaining righteousness. They were concerned to know and to do what the law required. They were determined to do whatever that law required, no matter what it cost them. They were so determined to do what the law required that they set up rules beyond what the law required. Their idea was that if we can shoot higher and go for more than what the law requires, hopefully we'll at least attain to what the law does require. And so they built what they called walls around the law, things which the rabbis and scribes required that God did not require. Some illustrations of that, they had Sabbath laws. You couldn't walk any longer than a certain distance. God didn't require that. But the Pharisees did. The scribes did. They had certain laws of cleansing, which the law of Moses didn't require. But the scribes and Pharisees required that. And the point was that if you have these walls around the law and you were kept at this distance in terms of your disobedience, hopefully you'd never get so close to the real law that you would disobey it. They were vitally concerned about righteousness. They were labeled as fools and fanatics by the Gentile world because of the extremes to which they would go to attain what they considered righteousness to be. According to the verse that's going to come up next Lord's Day, God willing, in chapter 10, they were in chapter 10 and verse 2 through 4, they were full of zeal for God and zeal for righteousness, but not according to knowledge. This, this passage says in Romans chapter 10. They were full of zeal. They didn't seek righteousness according to knowledge. They weren't very concerned about inward purity. They weren't very concerned about what God's law actually required. But in terms of outward purity and in terms of what they thought they should do, they gave great zeal to the pursuit of of righteousness in those realms. The Gentiles were not interested, but the Jews were busy about righteousness. The second thing that Paul says is that they simply didn't attain it. With all of their zeal, with all of their efforts, with all of their fanaticism, with all of the extreme lengths to which they went to attain righteousness, they did not attain it. And Paul asks the question, why? In verse 32, wherefore? Why? Why did they not attain unto righteousness? With all their privileges, with all their zeal, why? Now, before we actually look at what he says, I would just like you to appreciate a principle that emerges here. Because of the context of Romans chapter 9, you might be caused to answer this question by saying, well, the reason is because God didn't choose them. Why didn't they attain unto righteousness? You might be tempted to say, because God didn't choose, and that's why. That is not what Paul says. That is not the emphasis which the Apostle Paul would allow to be in our minds when we ask that question. Why did they not attain unto righteousness? Don't let yourself be wiser than God. Don't allow yourself to fill in the blank with something that Paul chooses to avoid. Paul's answer is not in terms of God's election. Paul's answer is in terms of their responsibility. Why did they not attain? The answer is not because God didn't choose them. The answer is because they would not submit to the means of salvation that God gave. They would not submit to salvation through faith. They were determined to have salvation through works. They failed. They were responsible. And because they failed, they're lost. It's important that we not allow our minds to run the course of logic, a logic that is not itself tempered by the scriptures. God is not to be blamed, and he will not take the blame upon himself, and we must not put it upon him for people that are sinful and wicked being lost. Now, why? 
According to this passage, why did they not attain to faith? Well, number one, they did not, I'm sorry, why did they not attain to righteousness? Number one, because they did not and would not seek salvation in God's way. They did not follow the right principle. They sought righteousness by works and not by faith. Now this, as you know, has been the great burden of this book. This has been Paul's burden throughout this entire book, is to draw men and women and children to understand that while the natural way to get to heaven might be to think you've got to do some things to please God, the gospel way is to say that you cannot possibly do enough to please God, and therefore you need something outside of yourself. Therefore, you need the righteousness of another. Therefore, you need the gospel. Now, the Jews had some things right. They had it right that God required righteousness. But they had it wrong when they thought that they could somehow do enough to satisfy God's requirement for righteousness. Look back, please, in chapter 3, Romans chapter 3, verse 9. Paul's argument in verse 9 is this, What then? Are we better than they? And the we is probably referring to himself as a Jew. Are we Jews better than those Gentiles? I believe that's what fits the context of this statement. Are we Gentiles, I'm sorry, are we Jews better than those Gentiles? No, in no wise. For we before laid to the charge both of Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God, and so forth. And he makes this concluding statement in verse 19. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it speaketh to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may be brought under the judgment of God, because by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. They would not believe this. The Jews would not accept this. Paul is trying to make it as clear as words can make it. Nobody, no Jew, no Gentile, no one is righteous. No one can keep God's law. And when we do stand before God, every mouth will be stopped. No excuse will be uttered. Everyone will sense, as well as be, guilty before God's law. They wouldn't, understand, they wouldn't accept that. They really believed that they could obey God's law. They were the chosen people. They were the special people. They had been circumcised. They had God's favor already. They had the sacrifices and the types and everything to ensure their salvation. Now all they had to do was carry on and be righteous, and all would be well with their souls. They were wrong on that. They were wrong. The best of them were wrong. The most zealous, the most moral, those who got closest to obeying the Ten Commandments were wrong. None of them could keep those commandments well enough to be accepted by God. They would not bow to this principle that salvation is through faith. The principle of salvation being through faith is in these next verses in chapter 3. If you're still there, please read further with me in Romans chapter 3 and verse 21. But now, apart from the law, a righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ unto all them that believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, and so forth. It's Paul's point. There is a righteousness that the Jews don't know anything about. There is a righteousness that is apart from our obedience to God's law. There is this righteousness of God, this perfect righteousness, this obedience of Jesus, obedience in terms of words, in terms of motives, in terms of thought, this obedience of Jesus that is given to everyone that believes so that when Jew or Gentile stands before the law of God, if they believe in Jesus, 
They have this righteousness, which in the day of judgment they present as it were. And though they themselves have sinned, they have this perfect obedience of Jesus, and they're accepted. Oh, the Jews couldn't handle that idea. That went contrary to everything they believed. They would not seek righteousness through faith. They were determined to seek righteousness by works. Maybe they thought the method of faith was too easy. Maybe they thought it threatened their ancient religions. Maybe they thought it would allow the Gentiles in and their Jewish pride would not allow them to submit to that. Perhaps, perhaps they simply were not willing to lower their own pride and act as if they couldn't be good enough to please God. Who knows? But they would not submit to this principle of faith as opposed to works. So why did they not attain righteousness? Number one, because they sought it on the wrong principle. They sought it by works instead of by faith. Paul says more, though. There's more to the reason as to why they did not attain unto righteousness. The second thing that he says is because they stumbled at Christ. God had set this great rock in Zion, this great stone, this great cornerstone, this precious, wonderful stone that God had set in the path, and they stumbled. They were in a figure. They were running a race to heaven. They had set their course, and they were running hard. But there was a stone in their path. There was a hurdle in their path, and they could not pass it. They stumbled on it and fell and did not finish the race and did not enter into heaven. The Jews looked very moral and they looked very upright in contrast to the pagan world. Again, let your imagination go back. The Jews were ridiculed. In the pagan world, they lived in ghettos. They separated themselves and they they were surely ridiculed and persecuted unfairly. And if we were to look back at them, we would see those ghettos as havens of morality. Men and women were faithful to their marriage vows. The Sabbath day and their understanding of that was honored. There were concerns for basic morality in terms of lying, in terms of covetous and the rest. There would be a lot that would be admirable, like there's a lot that's admirable about Mormons in the present day. There's a lot that would be admirable about the Jews. When you saw that in contrast to what Paul described in Romans chapter 1. They would appear to be very moral, upstanding people. But they stumbled, and they fell, and they revealed their true morality when they came into contact with Christ. Instead of being great moralists then, instead of being the great moralists that they presented themselves to be, they demonstrated the deepest kind of perversity. They fell. They appeared upright. They stood well in contrast to the pagan world. But when they came into contact with Christ, they demonstrated that they were just as perverse as the Gentiles. They demonstrated their basic hatred to God. They demonstrated their pride. They demonstrated their antipathy toward God, from what, toward what God required of them. They demonstrated murderous disposition, hatred to the Son of God. They were just as fallen and just as perverse as the the Gentiles. They knew much of outward constraint in their ghettos. The law was important to them. They put a shackle upon their minds and upon their hands and upon their conduct. They looked good. They stood tall morally until they came to Christ. They stumbled and they fell and they proved themselves to be on the same level of perversity as the Gentile world. Now, I do not mean that they did the same things as the Gentile world. I simply mean they proved what the scriptures say repeatedly, that all of us, all of us are equally fallen before God. What I just said is not meant to be anti-Semitic. Please do not take it that way. The point is that we're all the same. And when they came to Christ, they proved that they too though apparently moralists, hated God, hated God, hated his son, and killed him. They stumbled at the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. What in Jesus was offensive to them 
What in Jesus caused them to stumble and fall? It's easy to say some things, and it's easy to take a rather academic posture and say, well, these things caused the Jews to stumble at Jesus. But when you think about the things I'm going to say, they not only make the Jews stumble at Jesus, most of them also make Gentiles stumble at Jesus. Let me very briefly list the most obvious reasons why they considered Jesus an offense. Number one, they were offended. The Jews were offended at his accusations. Jesus accused the Jews of being bound in sin. He accused them of needing to be born again. Jesus accused the unbelieving Jews of being children of Satan in John chapter 8. And they bristled. They were not bound to sin. They had never been anyone's slave. They were the free sons and daughters of Abraham. He called Satan their father. They bristled again. They hated him because of the accusations. Jesus acknowledged their privileges, but he told them in no uncertain terms that their privileges would not save them, and they hated him for it. The second reason that he was offensive to them is they were offended at his general teachings. He taught the true nature of righteousness. In such places as the Sermon on the Mount, he taught very openly in a way that just must have made the Pharisees grit their teeth. He said publicly that the righteousness of my disciples, Jesus said, must exceed that of the disciples of the Pharisees and the scribes. You imagine how they would feel. Here they were supposed to be the epitome and the paragons of virtue and morality. And Jesus goes in that place and he says broadly to all the multitudes that are gathered around and to his disciples that are close to him, he says that the, the righteousness of his disciples must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And then throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he opens that up. The righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees was basically something that they could do with their hands. And Jesus said, your righteousness must be greater than theirs. Your righteousness must be a righteousness of heart, a righteousness of motive, a righteousness of thought. Their righteousness was basically something that could be done so men would see it and men would praise them. Jesus said, your righteousness must be far different than that. You do your righteousness for God. Go in secret and do it. Give your gifts when nobody knows it. Do your fasting and wash your face. Don't let anybody see. Your righteousness has to be greater than theirs. Their righteousness was concerned about relatively unimportant things. They were concerned about tithing their garden herbs and how they wore their phylacteries and so forth. And Jesus criticized them that you're concerned about the small and insignificant details of the law and the weightier matters such as love and justice and so forth and mercy. You don't care. Jesus was very clear and he offended them. My, the righteousness of my disciples must far exceed this righteousness that you're willing to settle for. So he, they, he was offensive to them because of his accusations, because of his teachings. They were offended by him because of his claims. And again, you, we, need to, we need to get away from our from what for some is, a, is an average way of reading the Bible and really try to put yourself into the historical situation. We read about Jesus' statements and they don't seem to have a lot of clout to us, but if you could somehow put yourself in the mindset of the Jewish world, he was a bombshell when he came into the world. Jesus came into the world making claims that he was the son of God. He came into the Jewish world making claims that he was the son of God. They could not stand that. They on more than one occasion wanted to kill him because of such claims. It was the highest form of blasphemy. They understood what many people in our time don't. They understood that he was saying he was God. And they could not, they could not tolerate such things. He claimed to have absolute right over them. He would stand up and speak to them as if he were God and they'd better do what he said. He claimed absolute right over them. He claimed to have the right to require them to leave everything, to forsake everything, and to follow him. You hear some of these, exa uh, these exaggerated preachers making their claims, but none of them, at least none that I've heard, just say, you should sell everything and come follow me. Some get perilously close. But Jesus didn't do that as, a, as somebody who was professing a sham. Jesus stood there with all the sobriety of God and demanded that everybody should just leave everything and do just what he told them to do. Jesus claimed that he would judge them in the last day. And I've often thought of that, that, and I think I've said this to you, what would that be like for you to hear a human being talking about him being your judge in the last day? 
saying that all the nations of the earth are going to stand before me and I'm going to separate them as the sheep and the goats. And some will be cast into everlasting fire. And some will be brought into the bliss of everlasting life. Oh, that, that offended them that he would make such claims. He was offensive to them because of his accusations. He was offensive to them because of his teachings in reference to righteousness. He was offensive to them because of his claims. He was offensive to them in the fourth place because of his death. They could not conceive of Messiah dying. The idea of a human sacrifice was beyond their willingness to accept. You remember that even his disciples had a hard time fathoming that the Messiah should die. You remember Jesus after the resurrection appearing to the disciples on the road to Emmaus and these men were dispirited. Jesus had died. They didn't know of his resurrection. Jesus had died and they were dispirited. And it says in Luke 24, 21, we had hoped, we had hoped, you know, what a pathetic statement. We had hoped that it was he who would deliver us. But he died and that dashed all their hopes. The idea of Messiah dying was not credible. Messiah was to come as the great victor, as the great leader, as the one who would redeem them from all oppressions and grant them prosperity and blessing. That was offensive to the Jews for him to think that he was the Messiah and to die. But again, the idea of a human sacrifice. The Jews, that's too abhorrent. The Jews had their sacrifices already. They had the animal sacrifices. They had the types and the symbols. They had the synagogue. I'm sorry, they had the temple in their, in their background. The idea that those weren't sufficient, the idea that those weren't adequate and that God would come expecting a human sacrifice was just, oh, it offended them. It almost seemed pagan to them. The pagans had human sacrifices. They didn't understand. They did not understand that God had sent his son into the world and that he had become a human being in order to literally, literally to bear the sins of the world and to take them to the cross and endure the wrath of God, that was, that was offensive to them. They wouldn't believe Jesus' statements about it and they wouldn't believe the apostles' statements, which were even more clear and exhaustive than Jesus' statements. And finally, they were offended at his requirements. As I said before, he required that they forsake everything and follow him. He required that they would take his yoke upon them he required that they would deny themselves every day and live for him. He required that they forsake the mosaics worship and give themselves to what that worship symbolized, and they would not. That was offensive to them. He was a rock of stumbling and a cause of offense. They would not have this man to rule over them. Now let me take the remainder of our time to try to make some applications of what Paul has set forth in these verses. The first application is simply to summarize something that I've already said, but I didn't want it to get lost in the shuffle of all the words that have come before. The first is simply to make this reminder. The basis of salvation is always traced to God, but the basis of condemnation is always traced to human sin. The basis of salvation is always traced to God. Whenever you have record of someone being saved and any comment being made about that from a biblical standpoint, the reason that that person is saved is because of what God has done, always. It's because God has elected, God has sent his spirit, God has given that individual faith, God has given that individual repentance, God has done a mighty work, blessed be God. The cause of a person's salvation is always traced back to God. But the cause of a person's condemnation is traced back to human sin. Some men are appointed to salvation. Why is that? Well, according to these passages, some men and some women and some children are appointed to salvation simply because of the wonderful mercy of God. And simply because of the sovereign choice of God, he will have mercy upon him whom he will have mercy. Why? Just because he chooses to. Some are appointed to salvation because of the sovereign mercy of God. Some are appointed to condemnation. Why? Not 
because God made them bad so that he could have an opportunity to show his justice. That's not ever the, the biblical reason. Why are some appointed unto condemnation? Because of their sin, because it's what they deserve. It's because it's what they choose. God hardens them, to be sure. But it was not that they were innocent, and God took them in their innocence and made them bad. They were already bad. They hated him. God confirmed them in that and hardened them. But why were they condemned? Because of their sin, because it was just, because it was what should be. We must never allow ourselves to let our logic flow outside of the channels which the Bible has already cut for us. We must be willing to think biblically and not accuse God, as some do, of taking people who are innocent, making them bad, so that he could display his justice. That's not what the scriptures say. The basis of salvation is always traced to God, but the basis of condemnation is always traced to human sin. The second application is that from this passage, we should truly see what Spurgeon calls the wonder of grace. The wonder of grace. God has mercy. He did and he does. God has mercy upon people who do not care for him, upon people who at a point in their life did not want him, who are completely indifferent to him. Some people, some well-meaning people, some well-meaning preachers, some well-meaning Christians, well-meaning. They give the impression that the only people that can be saved are those who have been laboring to seek God long periods of time, long periods of time. This wasn't true of the Gentiles. The Gentiles were just so indifferent, so indifferent. You read the accounts in the book of Acts of some of the Gentile conversions. I mean, here's the Philippian jailer. You don't read of the Philippian jailer for years and years wrestling with the claims of the gospel and going back and forth about whether he's worthy and whether or not he's elect and all sorts of things. In the crisis of the moment, the gospel comes to him with power. He falls in his face and believes. He goes to his house and is further instructed and rejoices with faith and is baptized. And the gospel came to the Gentiles with power. And God saved them one after another. He's been doing that now for hundreds of years. God is merciful, the wonder of grace that people who don't care about God that, they, that such people should ever become the recipients of grace and of pardon is a wonderful amazement. <coughs> Drunkards and prostitutes and immoral people of all sorts, they flock into the kingdom of God. What an amazing and wonderful thing. Now, we must never think that they come into the kingdom of God indifferent to righteousness. We must never think that you just live like you want, and if God wants you, he'll snap you out of the brothel and that you'll become a Christian on the spot. That's not the point. The point is that people who just have no interest in God, God does something to them. He goes to them when they don't deserve anything but wrath. He goes to them and he enlivens them. He makes them feel their need. He makes them sense their sin. He makes them sense their emptiness. He makes them sense something about himself. He draws them to him. A month ago, they would never have thought about him, but he's been doing such a work in their mind and soul that now they want him. What a wonder. What an amazing thing. There is nobody in the place that is so besought with sin and so sunken into the depths of perversity that they should conclude, there is no hope for me. God is merciful to the wicked. God is merciful to the unjust. God is merciful to the unmerciful. God is merciful to those who don't care about him. Blessed be God. We should not miss the thrust of this passage. It was an amazing... What shall we say to these things, Paul says? You have, to, you have to sense something of the amazement and surprise in Paul. What shall we say to these things? That the Gentiles who did not follow after righteousness have obtained righteousness. There are many in this room that would fit that description who did not care, did not know, and did not care and lived lives that were consistent with their lack of interest in God's righteousness. What wouldn't you think that such people should be left to what they want? The wonder of grace is that God comes to people who don't care and don't want him and works in their souls and makes them want him and brings them to himself. There is hope for all and there is no one here 
who has the right to judge that it is hopeless for me. God is merciful to those who don't deserve him. The third application, again using Spurgeon's language, we should from this passage see the wonder of folly. The wonder of folly. These Jews were so close. They had everything just laid before them, generation after generation. They had all the words and all the language. They had written prayers that are moving if you ever read some of the, the prayers. The children memorized prayers. The fathers would lead in, in prayers at special occasions. They would go to the synagogue and recite long passages. They knew so much. Everything was in their mouth and in their mind. They dressed in such a way that reflected an interest and a knowledge of God. They ate in such a way. They worshipped in such a way. They separated themselves in such a way. Everything was, everything was handed to them by God. But they did not attain righteousness. They would not follow the method that God had prescribed. And they didn't look so bad until they came into contact with Christ. And then they fell on their faces in a moral sense. They proved their perversity when they came into contact with him. Now, most of us in this room are Gentiles. And you might be thinking, well, it doesn't have any application to me. The application is this. There are people in this room who, like those Jews, have had prolonged rich exposure to the teachings of the Bible. There are people in this room who, like those Jews, knew a great deal about the Bible, have memorized catechisms, have said prayers, do say prayers. Some children that are called upon or volunteer to say prayers in family worship or in Sunday school classes. Some adults that say prayers at their meals, know the biblical language, have a lot of thoughts that are right about God. There are some people that know so much and are so close, but they're just like the Jews of old. Their folly will prove to be amazing. They will not take what is put to their hand. They will not eat what is put to their mouth. They will not believe that which so clearly made known to them. The Jews presumed, you see, they were the people of God. They had everything, and they presumed. I fear that there are some children here that are like that. You say your prayers. You read your Bibles. You follow along with the sermons. You presume. The question is not whether you know certain things, you memorize certain things, and you do certain things. The issue, according to this text, is what is Jesus to you? Is he a stone of stumbling to you? Do you fall over him? Does he expose your perversity? Or is he precious to you? There are some adults here who are described in just the ways that have been described, but you're not converted. Why is that? Some of you are still trying to, to seek God in a way that he has not appointed. Some of you have designed in your minds a proper method for being saved. And you're holding that before God, and that's the only way you're going to let yourself be saved. Some of you have such a view of what it is to be converted that unless your view of conversion happens to you, you'll not come to Christ. Some of you are waiting for God to do something that is inexplicable, that will just cause you to believe and have faith and make you rejoice, and you'll wake up a new person. Some of you are waiting for that. It's not a method that God has endorsed. But you have prescribed that for God, and you're waiting for that. And you're just like the Jews. You will not come on the basis which he has described, prescribed. He requires you to come in faith and believe. He does not ask you to wait for an experience. It is the trick of the devil, even though it may have been impressed upon you by some religious, well-meaning people. He is not asking you to wait to be converted. He is commanding you to leave your sins and believe the gospel 
and not trust in a conversion experience or not trust in some kind of an event that you can remember, but to trust that Jesus' obedience is sufficient to save you and that he'll give it to you if you'll believe. That's what you're to trust. But some of you won't do that. And you pride yourself and you excuse yourself by saying, I have not been converted. God calls you to believe and to repent. And if you keep prescribing what God must do, you'll be lost just like the Jews because you are unwilling to submit to his method of salvation. And the fourth application is somewhat assumed in what has just been said. And that is that Christ has been and always shall be the divider of men. Christ was a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to the Jews. But to some Gentiles and to a remnant of Jews, he became precious. Do you know the text that I'm referring to? I'd like you in closing to turn to the text. It's in 1 Peter chapter 2. In 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2, beginning to read in verse 6. Because it is contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be put to shame. For you, therefore, that believe is the preciousness, but for such as disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, the same was made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, for they stumble at the word being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. Jesus is one of two things to everyone. Jesus is either a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, or he is the preciousness. It's a hard word to translate. It's a hard passage to translate. The, the idea of the preciousness. But Jesus is either one or the other to everyone here. Jesus is either to you a rock of stumbling and a cause of offense, or he is precious. He is either somebody that you're stumbling over, you're offended by him, you're not willing to give up everything for him, you're not willing to let him intrude into your marriage and into your business, you're, he's offensive to you because of the things you would have to endure if you identified with him in the public circles. He's offensive to you. You stumble over him. Like the Jews, you look like a pretty nice person until you have to explain why you won't believe in Jesus. You look like a very nice person until you have to explain why you won't bow, the, bow your soul to him. You look like a very nice person until you have to explain why you use his words and his name and blasphemous words and so forth. Some of you look very nice until you're exposed by Jesus. He is either that to you or he is exceedingly precious. You have come to see him as so wonderful that you would happily give up everything for him. You have come to see that he is a, such a savior that you would gladly spend and be spent for him all the rest of your days. You find his words a delight that though you, you are sorry that you so inconsistently obey them, you still find them to be a delight. You want to obey them because he's precious to you. Not because he's holding his rod over you, but because he's precious to you. Well, I ask some of you, especially the children, is he precious to you? Is he precious to you? Do you love him? Do you have some sense inwardly of how much you need him? Is he precious to you in the sense that you know that in him is full understanding? In him is a complete awareness of all the complexity of your problems. In him is forgiveness. In him is reconciliation with God. In him is hope for all the daily decisions of your life. In him is hope for direction concerning your future. In him is everything. And therefore, to you, he is wonderful. He is precious. Well, Jesus is the great divider of men. He is either a stone of stumbling and a cause of offense. Or he is precious. And you may say, well, he's not either one to me. If you say that, he is a stone of stumbling to you. If he's not precious to you, if he's not precious to you, then he is a cause of stumbling to you. And you will stumble over him into hell. May God be pleased 
to grant us something of Paul's wonder. What shall we say then that the Gentiles who did not seek after righteousness have attained? And may we be sobered, especially those of us who know so much, may we be sobered by his statement that even though the Jews sought after a law of righteousness, they did not attain because they would not come in the way that God had prescribed. Let us pray together. Our Father and our God, it is amazing to us. It is wonderful, but it is amazing to us. The largeness of your mercy and your willingness to forgive us. We know from the descriptions of the Bible and we know from consulting our own lives and our own consciences how far short we have come of your law. Before we were converted and since we have been converted, but you have chosen to be merciful to us. Praise be to you. We thank you with everything that is within us for your mercy to us. And though we, many of us, would acknowledge that our thoughts of Jesus are far inferior to what they should be, we nonetheless thank you that you've made him to be precious to us. We do love your son. We are very grateful to you for him. And Lord Jesus, we express to you how thankful we are for your self-sacrifice, for your willingness to endure what you did on our behalf. We thank you for your present sympathy with us and for your intercessions and for your communing with us. We thank you. You are precious to us, and we ask that you would please help us to live our life more singularly and to live in the light of how, of how we do indeed perceive you as precious. Almighty God, we appeal to you. We appeal to you who has mercy upon those who have not sought you. And we pray that for our children and adults in this place, that you would please graciously and powerfully go to them and call them and bring them to love your Son. We ask in his name.